Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by Daytona, the UK's premier kart racing venues. Today's episode is called We Need to Talk About Fernando. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? Oh, it's going great. You know, there's nothing better than coming back from vacation to a life filled with misery, woe, and bureaucratic. Mm, and that's just the Mercedes fans saying that. Also, America's got some problems. Uh, hope that everybody listening in America is safe from the floods. However, we are here to talk about Formula One, Matt. It is truly game on. I said if Ferrari won in Spa, the championship would really be set up and set on fire. They didn't win, but a very, very close second. Yeah, and if you're a Mercedes fan, I think you got to be just you know, mildly worried by how close they were in what should have been a Mercedes wheelhouse. Definitely. And I think that's the crucial thing is now we're looking at tracks that we think will suit one or the other. And we're all being little experts and applying handicaps uh, to each team into an event. So people are turning Ferrari's second place into a victory. We'll explore that a little bit further. But first, it's safe to say that we are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute, except on bank holidays when our wives make us do things at the weekend. We might be wrong, but we're normally first. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. We are joined by some guests, Matthew. Yes, we are. Shall we introduce them rapidly? The ever busy, but today available, autosport journalist, Chris Rainbow Sparkle Stevens. How's it going, Chris? Hey, what's going on? Really? That's what you're coming in with? Hey. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In a way, I've recharged the batteries to oh. make a Formula E pun as well. I would call this style of panelisting overconfident. Joining him as well is Alex Goldschmidt. How's it going, Goldie? Hi, Spanners. Hello, everybody. Yeah, good to be back on Missed Apex once again. Oh, you've gone the other way. You've got no enthusiasm at all. Right, you two well, I've been suffering. With, I've been suffering with hay fever all day, mate, so my nasal passages are a bit bunged up, but I'm still here. I thought still you were going to say, I've been suffering because I do a tin top podcast. Well, I don't just do tin top podcasts now, do I? Because I actually commentate for the guys at Daytona on the D-Max Championship. Let's go to the qualifying this weekend. Yeah, even before the qualifying, I have concerns. Matt, who who does a gentleman's agreement in a multi-million pound championship and then gets upset when it doesn't get followed? I want to know the details of the gentleman's agreement between Ferrari and Mercedes. I want to know what hanky it was written on, which individuals were involved, and why Ferrari are so upset. I don't know why they are really upset. After all, if one looks at the history of gentlemen, you find, generally speaking, they went bankrupt gambling and didn't ever pay their bills, at least in the 18th and 19th century. But apparently they had, I don't even know if you'd call it a handshake, but it has been rumored because of the regulation change coming in Monza, where, uh, as I'm sure everybody's entirely aware, uh, the FIA have sought to limit the burning of oil in the combustion chamber because it was seen as unfairly allowing a cheat to the fuel efficiency regulations. And they discovered everybody pretty much had been doing this more than they wanted it. So they limited it to 1.2 liters and said very clearly, as of Monza, the limit would be 0.9 liters per race. And they were going to measure it too. So, you know, here, here, here we come with our yardstick. Unfortunately, uh, it turns out that in the wording of the regulations, or perhaps because it was just physically impossible, it was only going to uh, ever apply to power units that were introduced at Monza or later. And supposedly Ferrari and Mercedes agreed not to introduce their fourth power unit until Monza so they would both be complying with this regulation. Okay, so question for, for the uninformed. Obviously, I know, but is it four power units this year or five in total? It would be four. Mm, And apparently it's going to go to three in the future as well. So now what Mercedes have done is that all their power units that they use for the remainder of the season will have this 1.2 litres of oil instead of the new 0.9. Now, they haven't penalised themselves by doing that, have they? Because they can still use the previous power units. It's just that power units used for the first time can only burn this 0.9. That's correct. From Monza onward, new power units have to comply with it. But if they've already been run, apparently the way the and the thing is, we're calling it a regulation, but we we're wrong in that. It's actually a technical directive. And as such, they don't publish those and they're really rather hard to get rid of. So language like this, um, I, I actually had a uh, chat with Summers, but it was uh, Pat Simmons on Sky uh, ahead of the race that first pointed out. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? Because it seems like it's unfair to have your other, all your other units able to burn oil and only the newest of them not. But apparently that's the way it was written for whatever reason. Chris, Ferrari are upset. Do they have a leg to stand on, given that they were running an extra oil tank at one point? I don't really know what they were expecting Mercedes to do, to be honest. Uh, Formula One is about pushing the, the limits of the regulations. And if you make an agreement with another team to say, oh, no, no, we'll just we'll hold off. 
for a little bit, I think you can fully expect to be stabbed in the back. I would imagine so. Uh, and wasn't it Ferrari as well that dobbed in Mercedes trick suspension at the beginning of the season? So they can hardly expect Mercedes to be like, yeah, no, no, you're right. After you, let's wait till Monza. But Matt, in the chat room, Josh Covey is asking, are they risking reliability issues due to the old power unit towards the end of the season let me hazard a guess that no not in the terms of wear and tear because they still have the same amount of engine miles but are they say sacrificing a reliability update perhaps that they could have done later no um reliability and cost updates are always permitted on all pus with the prior approval of the fia and the other teams so if it's a proper reliability update then they'll be able to make it regardless but generally, the last power unit would be introduced sometimes around Monza anyway, as Monza and Spa are the two biggest power tracks really left in the entire season. And I think that's a, a good point. The fact that, you know, we've got these two tracks that are dubbed as engine killers, particularly Monza and Mercedes have, are going to do both of those races on one engine. But I think they're kind of resigned to the fact that everyone is going to be getting a power unit penalty at some point this season. The idea that you can do a whole season on four power units is frankly a bit ridiculous. They saw them try to do uh, something similar uh, last season, and I, it was only a handful of cars that actually managed to do this. So, Well, Williams uh, managed it by just turning the power down and giving up competitiveness. Right, yes, but then you're, you're just sacrificing... Yeah, exactly, yeah your track position just for the sake that for in one race you won't have a 10 place grid penalty i think they're pretty much resigned to the fact that they will at some point take an engine penalty i'm just curious if anyone knows of a study that determines that it's cheaper to only limit them to four engines because it seems like to me blowing up engines and having to supply new ones might at a certain point be more expensive than just letting them give them an extra engine to begin with could just be me but yeah you know well, I always get told off for talking about my job, but that's an excellent point, Matt. To make more reliable engines is more expensive. I was going to say the cost of development on that yeah. as well, added on to it, plus every time, every once in a while it does go bang. That's, I, I'd like to see that graph in the independent. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Goldie, disaster for Williams that we've just been talking about. And in the midfield, finally, Palmer actually had a good qualifying and, and got himself up there a bit. Yeah, I mean that was that was good to see in terms of um, Palmer, but it's still not enough because the man that's really sort of throwing it all um, into it is Nico Hulkenberg, who's done another, who's done a cracking job. But Palmer has upped his game, but Williams, yeah, um, don't know what they were thinking. You know, Spa is one of those tracks where they're they're going full throttle by over fifty percent. So if you're going to turn the engines down, you you're going to put yourselves at a sitting duck position, which was the case for both Felipe Massa and Lance Stroll. So I don't know what they were thinking, and uh, have they brought any updates to Spa? I'm not too sure, but did they work? Apparently not. Well, I was just going to ask, are we even sure that was really Palmer and not his evil twin? Or was it a younger sibling by any chance? It could be, but I will say this. Had he not suffered the gearbox problem in Q3, he would have outqualified Hulkenberg. I'm convinced of it. It's also worth pointing out as well, this is probably the first time this season since the first race in Australia uh, there may have been other uh, races where this briefly was the case. But for this race, both Palmer and Hulkenberg had an identical car in that they both had the same level of upgrades onto them. And you'd have to say, Spa, is, it's a driver's track. You know, it separates the men from the boys. And uh, so for Palmer to have done you know, what he did in, in qualifying up until that problem, it's very impressive. He, it's 
turned himself around. And I really uh, am looking forward to seeing if he can continue that through to the end of the season. It might save his career. I think what we can say is that he's stopped making it worse. So he's put like a sticking plaster on it temporarily in Spa, and this can be a springboard. If he'd have turned up and he'd been nowhere again, the only name you'd have heard is Kubica, Kubica, Kubica. It, it, it hasn't helped that every once in a while he does miraculously, you know, bin it, which means that he does lose upgrade parts. It means that he loses a lot of track time and it's not made the situation any better on a car that already doesn't have bulletproof reliability. Should we go to the race, Matt? Um, we could, as long as you don't want to mention Hamilton's uh, 68th pole, tying Michael Schumacher or the crazy tire issues. Absolutely. What an enjoyable moment to see him equal Michael Schumacher's record and become the joint all-time pole sitter in Formula One history. And I don't want to put a damper on that. It is a significant milestone. And that 68 has been sitting there, you know, waiting for him. We've been counting it down. We saw him go past Senna. It does have to be said, however, Schumacher would have got a lot more poles had the qualifying system been different in the 2000s. Nevertheless, it is a huge milestone, and Hamilton is cementing himself as one of the greatest qualifiers of all time. Yeah, That's... absolutely. And the for, and the Mercedes clearly the fastest car over one lap. Alex, and also the uh, the touching message that Ross Brawn actually delivered to Lewis as well was a nice um, closer on that chapter of history, um, where he's you know sixty eight. 68 pole positions is no mean feat and to have spent you know since 2007 he's done a, a fantastic job but also is one of the class drivers of the field and pushes all the way through qualifying irrespective of whether he gets pole or not i think sebastian vettel deserves a, a shout out from that qualifying as well because he turned his whole weekend around in in q3 because up until that point kimmy was the one with the pace he'd been the one topping the practice sessions and looking like the two uh the stronger of the two ferrari so for him to coming to Q3 and bam, put it on the, the front row. I thought that was very impressive. And that was a, a, a key point for the race as well. Yeah, absolutely. Hannah in the chat room says, if Lewis was going to match Schumacher, it's good that it was at Belgium, well, where Schumacher made his debut and had his first win. And uh, James Funnel is wondering where he will actually beat that record. And, and I would say Mons is a pretty good bet for that. Uh, yes, Matt, you were talking about the, the funny tyres. They were wibbling. They were wibbling and wobbling. Yeah, I, I we had an interesting chat about that on Slack with some of the more technically minded people. And I actually uh, talked to Summers a little bit about it, too. And basically, it's a resonance issue that had to do with the low speed light fuel and the high torques out of those two particular turns, turn one and turn 19. Uh, but Summers also mentioned that the teams have been trying to replicate with the suspension the work that the mass dampers used to do before they were banned. And he thought that might also have caught them out more than just a little bit. Uh, that and, uh, of course, the pressures that they were running in the tires. Awesome. Race time. I was enjoying a hot summer's day instead of watching the race because my little niece selfishly turned one and arranged her picnic and barbecue at the same time as the race. That selfish little ruiner. She doesn't even know it was her first birthday. What a waste of time. Yeah, it's not. she's not going to remember you weren't there. I don't see what the deal is. Now, while I wasn't there for 15 minutes of it, as I sneaked off into the shade and sacrificed a bit of my data plan to catch the start, and it was one of those starts I was very, very nervous about because there's so many places you can lose the lead 
uh, from Pole. And bit of a you know bit of full disclosure to the people who might not have picked up on it. I am a Lewis Hamilton fan, and I did want him to win this race. Uh, yeah, there's loads of places where it can go wrong in Spa. Obviously, Turn One. And then getting the drag over the top of the hill past Eau Rouge. Yes, yes, I know it's called something else, but everyone calls it Eau Rouge. Matt, why don't you tell us where the race was won and lost? Well, you mean Radion down onto the Kimmel Strait? Is that what you were talking about? I don't uh, acknowledge like, your hipster names. I love I, I love Radion with my sushi. No, wait, sorry. Entirely different <laughs> thing. Uh, no, it, looking back at the race, you could say that it was about 10 corners long maybe 11, if you include the bus stop on the restart under the safety car. And I'm going to guess there, Spanners, that the moment when Vettel flicked out of the toe from Hamilton down the Kimmel Strait towards turn five is probably a moment at which your heart literally stopped beating until he snicked back in to make the turn as he realized he did not have the velocity to get round. Yeah, it was definitely emotional. And if you're watching a race when you're supposed to be celebrating your niece's first birthday, you can't even shout out, no, no, keep him on the outside, that German git. Uh, it must have been brutal, must have been brutal. But that was it. That was That was probably one of his two very best chances to get in front of the Mercedes. Now, I know we, we were going to argue about which car was better later on, but it, over the course of a full lap, I think generally speaking, the Ferrari would have been faster without the Mercedes in front of it. But again, not fast enough to get by. And crucially, it turns out Mercedes have a special mode that allow the drivers to continue to deploy ERS even after the algorithm, even after the algorithm says they they should stop if they feel they need it. Something that Alonso might have appreciated in qualifying when he took Wuhan flat out and the Urs thought he was just entirely someplace else on track. Sorry, I had to throw that in. It was just too funny. No, no. Alonso fooled the Honda software by driving fast. That's fantastic. So presumably Hamilton lost some Urs deployment around the rest of the track somewhere else. But the point where the engine and the software would naturally want to say, no, 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 that's the end of the deployment, they were able to, to keep it stuck in. So twice that probably saved Hamilton from losing the lead. Yeah, I would, I would think so. And apologies if I've not gotten that entirely right. I was just reading the wonderful Mark Hughes article and he had mentioned that detail. Uh, but it was, it was crucial. The start was absolutely crucial. Hamilton defending and always remembering that both with the safety car and at the start of the race, you have two non-DRS laps. That also, I think had Vettel had DRS on lap one, it could have been could have been the end of uh, Lewis right there. But by the time they got to lap three, with everything everything running at full temperatures, uh, it, it was it was going to be difficult or impossible for him to get by. And I think they were also targeting later in the race for the strategy Ferrari was. Baja suggesting that Hamilton was charging his battery in the second sector as well. Chris. Did anybody else see the quote from Lewis saying that he was in the wrong power mode on the restart as well and how this actually helped him? Because at Spa, it's a lot about the slipstream. And when you catch a car, it can be either beneficial or it can actually hurt you. Uh, And in Vettel's case, it hurt him because he caught Lewis too quickly and it meant he had to back out uh, just before a rouge. And that actually cost him his momentum going up the hill. And so the fact that, you know, Lewis was going a little bit slower actually helped Lewis. And I think he he was also quoted saying he was at 90% throttle as well to just kind of 
back Seb up a little bit, which is masterful race craft. And, and you're not one who gushes over Lewis Hamilton at all. But Matt, when we talk about where the race was won and lost, I mean, this was really, really key. What's up, Chris? No, I'm saying you're not like a Hamilton apologist, are you, in any way? So to hear you call it masterful gives it extra weight. I appreciate great driving when I see it. And I saw it on, I was about to say today, but of course it's Monday. So Matt, where we talk about where the race was won and lost, this was absolutely key. This was probably the moment he won the race. And even before that, I think he was saying it wasn't so much that he was blocking Vettel in order to you know, slow him down and lose the momentum. Initially, what must have gone through his mind first was, if Vettel gets past, I will be able to catch him. Therefore, Vettel will probably figure that out and hold off until he reaches a good point with momentum. Therefore, I can block his momentum. That is a real game of chess at thousands of miles an hour or hundreds or ones. Yeah, it is. And I think we've seen Hamilton be clever like this uh, before, uh, particularly in the race with Rosberg, where he did that beautiful cutback and passed him again and basically ran him off track uh, in 2014, was it? Bahrain. Yeah. Just It was just like you could see him. He slowed early so he could nip the apex well inside of Rosberg, who's going to have to go late because he was on the inside approaching the turn. Uh, but this is what racers do. They don't think about that. It, the solutions come to them without having to intellectually run through all of the steps. And that's why uh, you see people who can drive in the rain, people who can make these kinds of overtakes. Uh, that That's what sets them apart. A lot more people could drive a car fast by itself on track then could work that out and make it happen, if you know what I mean. But we're overlooking also the other really critical part of the start and what might have actually, even more than Hamilton's defense from Vettel, won the race for Mercedes. Please do illuminate us. And that would be Sergio Perez forgetting to put his car into start mode. So he ended up causing a little bit of chaos and being swamped by Hulkenberg on his left-hand side and then making some quite brutal contact with his teammate, who we may or may not apportion blame for this and another incident in the next segment of the show. Depends how we feel. We definitely will. Right. Well, regardless of the second incident, the the nut of it was uh, Perez found himself headed down towards Eau Rouge with insufficient momentum to be going as fast as all the other people trying to pass him. And that turned out to be Hulkenberg and Ocon simultaneously. He caught Hulkenberg on the left and moved right. And man, yes, as big a- moment, big moment, tire on tire, into the wall, smoke, sparks. And somehow, somehow they all got through there three wide without a disaster. Blackout19 in the chat room says, Sergio did not put his car in the wrong mode he simply put it into kill Ocon mode and obviously the car would have had to have slowed down in order to have engaged him there uh yeah a lot of chaos chris yeah i mean if that had ended up being the absolute airplane crash that it should have been we would be running around right now saying these drivers are crazy they need a race ban we've got to reinforce driver standards this is absolutely crazy instead they all came out looking like absolute heroes and that is the knife edge that you end up racing on. I just think we need to appreciate that because that was a a fantastic moment. That's going to stick in the head for a while. Yeah. And also the second contact was equally dramatic. Don't worry. We are going to go back to this in the next segment. Uh, But that ended ended up obviously costing, uh, causing a safety car. Now I was a bit torn when the safety car came out. Is this good for the driver at the front with his 
tires that were blistering and bubbling away. And I thought, yeah, this is great. This resets the battle. Uh, Vettel had pitted two laps late, later than Hamilton. So presumably the thinking was he'd have fresher tires in whatever stint. But that advantage was completely gotten rid of by the safety car. Mercedes was waiting for Vettel. Vettel was waiting for Mercedes. And eventually they pulled the trigger about lap 12. And what was interesting to me, and I don't know, Chris, if you felt the same way about it, was that the following lap, Vettel didn't come in. It was his second lap. And and they lost, as a result, about two seconds to Mercedes on, on that undercut when all was said and done. It would have been less had they simply followed him in the next lap. And I don't know if that was strategic uncertainty or if they if they were thinking they were going to go a different direction and then realize very rapidly that that it wasn't what they wanted to do wasn't going to work. The thing at Spa, because it's such a long lap, the undercut plays a massive part. It has a much bigger effect than it does in most uh, races. So who pretty much whoever came in first out of those two was going to end up in the lead of the Grand Prix. So Mercedes knew that they had to be the first ones in if they wanted to maintain track position. Now, my thinking is that Ferrari in response to that would extend the first stint so that they would have a significant tire advantage come the end of the race. Good point. But, but two laps, that's not enough. Uh, you know, I get the feeling that they wanted to play that strategy, but weren't able to. Yeah, that's interesting. But whatever advantage they did have was obviously wiped out with the safety car. So initially, looking at Hamilton's rear tyre, and it was looking very dodgy, you think, oh, this is a great thing. They can both be on fresh tyres. There's going to be no lack of grip kind of situations. Uh, but then, Goldie, it turns out Ferrari have been holding secret ultra mega plaid soft tires that mercedes haven't got yeah um and we saw that towards the end of the race when vettel pitted for a, a set of ultra softs but it was good to see that both mercedes drivers were still sticking to the um yellow branded pro the soft compound tires which they seem to run a bit better on as well and hamilton was setting a lot of fastest laps in the process towards the end of the race yeah and and they held on to those and they didn't bother the ultra softs because they're continuing to overheat stuff in his in his uh in his second stint he was constantly on edge of overheating both the soft tires he was on hence the blistering and his brakes as well and unfortunately for us the safety car in a way kind of saved mercedes bacon a little bit um chris i think it's important to remember how different cars uh treat different tires and how they have preferred uh options because it's it's very, very easy to look at, oh, Vettel was on Ultrasofts, he should have been a second and a half quicker than Lewis, so why didn't he win the race? You know, you know, both teams were trying to to play to their strengths in that scenario, I feel. You know, the Mercedes does run very well on soft tyres. Uh, that's kind of been a, a factor of its car for uh, pretty pretty much since the hybrid era uh, began, basically. And uh, the Ferrari knew that they were going to run well on, on Ultras, so... I don't think it's necessarily as, as sort of night and day as it can first appear to be. But at the same time, you know, Vettel would have had some sort of pace advantage from those tyres. OK, Philip Allen in the chat room says Hamilton didn't like the safety car stint and he definitely seemed to object to the safety car being out at all, which led me to wonder whether or not they are more and more trigger happy with the safety car have they been given some kind of edict that says if in doubt get the safety car out 
or was Hamilton, you know, you know, you can't see everything from the cockpit and it wasn't wasn't quite suiting his tactics at the time. He was he was annoyed about it hurting his race because he knew that Ferrari had this set of ultrasofts, you know, in hand and they were going to use them if a safety car came out. I think the decision to put the safety car out was fully uh, justified and his comment uh, on the radio that it was a, a, a BS call and that it was acting like NASCAR, I completely disagree with that. I think Hamilton's irritation wasn't for the safety car because there was a tremendous amount of, of debris left over from the Force India collision, but it was with how many laps it went on. I think that was very much the issue because he could sit there and look at his brake temperatures going sideways. He could look at his tire temperatures. And after about two or three laps, he started to complain as he is wont to do when he's leading the race. It needs to go faster because I'm losing my temperatures. That's less of an issue for you if you're a Ferrari and have ultra soft tires on. I had a thought about this the other day, and I, I think maybe the cars have uh, outgrown that safety car, given the, the extra speed they've got, because we know that that Mercedes AMG SLS is driven to uh, the max. And yet these tires are maybe they're a bit finicky. It's quite hard to get them into their operating window, window because that's just the way kind of Pirelli have been operating these past few years but i'm wondering if maybe we need uh, a quicker safety car no no now. no no no. the chat room's disagreeing oh. paul wright has come in and said i love how lewis is always telling the safety car that it's too slow but it's a mercedes so from a marketing point of view i'd be telling him to say that he can't keep up with that thing lewis should be in the car going ah oh, tell that safety car to slow down i can barely keep up with it well done paul wright an early contender for comment of the week matt all right so i'm just going to do like i mentioned briefly what the safety car might have robbed us of. So imagine there's no safety car. You have Mercedes with Hamilton on soft tires with blisters, Vettel behind him. Does Vettel undercut for the ultra sauce with 15 laps left yeah. and chase him down? I was dying to see the strategic call about whether they were going to jump onto the ultra softs. Does Mercedes pit and throw on new tires so they don't have a Vettel-esque disaster on the last lap as he's trying to defend that would leave Vettel in the lead who might then go for a one stop. There was a tremendous decision point approaching in the race. Yep. Force India's came together and it was, I think it worked very much in Mercedes favor to not have to make that choice. Cause the moment the safety car was out, everybody was through the pits and it solved their tire problem immensely what i thought was going to happen was that vettel was going to get closer and closer to hamilton and mercedes were going to have to decide do we keep doggedly defending on this tire and or do we jump on to our new tires fool him get an undercut get a little bit of an advantage again uh, but obviously as the laps ticked on you need a good buffer you need like say a good 10 laps to make that tactic work and then ferrari are faced with an absolutely and a pig of a choice uh, as to whether to go onto that softer tire. And as we saw, not that easy to get past on new tires, even when you had, uh, you know, a super soft versus the soft. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ultra soft versus the soft. So it was the widest possible spread. And, and the Ferrari had worked very well. And from the start on the ultra softs, and I think, you know, going back to Hamilton under the safety guard, this is, he knew this. He knew that the tire temperature for the ultra soft would be much better for the Ferrari than his cold, soft tires and glazed brakes would be on the restart. And, and that's, that's the thing to be, the longer it went, the worse it was going to get for him. 
Okay, let's go to the chat room. By the way, we really appreciate your presence here in the chat room. I really feel the atmosphere of the recording is absolutely made by your guys' attendance. If you want to join them, search for Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and click subscribe. There's a little bell there. If you click that, you'll get a notification every time we go live, usually 8pm Sundays, except on bank holidays where we nudge it till Monday night. Still ready for your UK commute. Sorry, rest of the world. Joshua Clare in the chat room says, Hamilton did amazingly well to keep Vettel behind him at the restart. I thought he was going to get done at Puan. Sarah Reynolds, the safety car causes a loss of heat in the tyres and it's worse in the softs than the ultra softs. Hence, Hamilton wanted them to speed up and his brakes were glazing. And now Baja makes a good point. I'll explain it all. Vettel ran more downforce, which protected his tyre usage, then used the slipstream to stay with Lewis, hoping to burn up Lewis's tyres. Uh, a lot of good points there, Goldie. Uh, how did you see that final battle? Um, well, I think also one of the other factors we have to consider is dirty air. So if Seb is in the slipstream, that's also going to degrade the ultrasofts a lot quicker. So Lewis, in some respects, was in prime position, was able to manage his softs. And when you think about the fact that Spa is actually quite a high G corner circuit as well. You know, we were seeing corners anything up to four and a half, four point eight Gs. So these cars are going through a lot more loads through the likes of Eau Rouge, Radion, Pouan. Um so Lewis was in prime position to you know command that race and said was at a slight disadvantage. Okay, he was on the ultra softs, but the dirty air still causes that potential change in whether he was going to be able to out slipstream him. I have a follow-up for you, Mr. Goldschmidt. So, had the situation been re- uh, reversed, uh, Blackout19 asks, would we have seen Sebastian Vettel disappear from Lewis Hamilton, or could Lewis Hamilton have challenged him and stayed in his slipstream? Well, it's a 50-50 on that, I think. Um, just really, if it was the case that Seb had actually got past Lewis at some particular point, had there been no safety car, whether his overusage of the tire of the, the ultra soft tires might have compromised the last few laps is anyone's guess. Um, but Lewis was on a slightly better compound tire, but there's two completely different operating windows, for the tires um, coming back to the safety car. Chris was mentioning earlier on, I think we need to get the FIA to upgrade it to an AMG GTR, let alone what they're currently got at the moment. That might help. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, if, Seb, I don't think would have run away with it, if I'm honest. Matt? Uh, no, no. Neither car is going to run entirely away from the other. But I believe he would have been able to pull a bigger gap on Lewis than Lewis was able to pull on him. Chris, any final thoughts on where the race was won and lost? I think we should uh, compare the Lewis-Seb vessel to what happened to Valtteri Bottas on the restart. Because by rights, what happened to him is exactly what should have happened to Lewis, given that they're in identical cars uh but uh bottas was one struggling more with um with tire warm-up than than lewis so you'd have to say lewis did a, a really good job to actually uh maintain that tire temperature and get it up enough so that he could get a nice run off of um la source and maybe valtteri should take a a couple of tips on lewis's racecraft the 90 percent throttle thing because you'd be pretty sure that valtteri was just keeping it flat to the floor at that point it's an interesting point you bring up as as Bottas all weekend had been complaining about a lack of grip, even though he felt the basic balance of the car was OK. 
and and you saw it very clearly uh, coming down the Kimmel Strait, where it was bad enough that that Ricardo got round him one direction, but he also didn't twig to the fact that Raikkonen was coming the other way and, and didn't cover off the inside, left the door open. And, you know, for someone who doesn't quite have a signed contract for next year, this is really not the sort of mistake you want to be making when the big bosses are watching. Also, you've got to say, who do you fancy getting back past if two cars are swamping you? You've got to fancy getting past Ricciardo more than Kimi. So surely fully shut the door on the Ferrari and then take your chances against the Red Bull. I would disagree. They're not racing Red Bull for uh, World Constructors points. They're racing Ferrari for World Constructors points. Ricardo is irrelevant. Staying ahead of Kimi was everything. So we're violently agreeing that he should have blocked Kimi and ignored Ricciardo at the top of the hill. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, then. Hang on a minute. That music signifies how important Chris Stevens is to me and what he is doing. What are you doing? Autosport. You said you couldn't be on last week to join our quiz because you were scared of getting all the questions wrong. You claimed you had to work for Autosport when, in fact, what you wanted to do was avoid talking about the fact that I beat you at go-karting and I'm much faster than you and you're terrible. Actually, I was sick, but uh, we'll we'll gloss over that. Not uh, at the karting you weren't, you slow, and, oh, ordinary driver. If I'd have known that before we went karting, you went and had a private lesson with a Red Bull, a 2001 Red Bull go-karting champion, then maybe I would have done the same. It's called preparation, Chris. Anyway, what I've been up to... Hang on, uh, Matt, Matt wants to stick the knife in. Oh, go on. I, I do. How many times did you, you point out this on all of our various podcast spanners? Point out that I was getting a lesson from Bradley Philpott. I think I was uh, very, very open about it, leaving, as I think you're implying, ample room for him to match my preparation. Indeed. I would like to use the word multiple times if I could, because I think that adequately describes multiple times, multiple podcasts. You have not so casually hinted that you're getting tutored by possibly one of the best driving instructors in all the UK. And Mr. (laughs) Stevens, much like Valtteri Botas, was apparently asleep at the switch when it mattered most. Well, you know what it's like when Spanish talks on the show? You just kind of nod off and fall asleep a little bit until he says your name and then you wake up and go, oh, I'm supposed to say stuff. I did an Uh, entire podcast on it, Chris, but tell us what you were doing last weekend. You are fully now in the swing of being a jobbing journalist this has been your dream from the very beginning what's the reality like it's it's pretty good you know it's uh it's enjoyable uh which is good because it gives me a break from uh, the day job which i can't stand at the moment so it's a good job nobody from work is listening to this show um but yeah so i was at thruxton um for the first time uh at uh, at the weekend covering the 750 motor club uh which is what i do for club racing uh, at autosport uh, and you'll be able to see my report in uh, this week's edition of uh, the magazine. It's a very, very good day of racing overall. It is incredibly exciting. And as, as much grief as we give you, we're extremely proud to have you doing that and be a part of our panel. Chris, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at cstevens underscore journo on Twitter. And you can find all my Formula One and Formula E news at formulaspy.com. Oh, Christopher Fonseca. He's just come in with... You only beat me because you prepared, in quotation marks, Pony Award for Sparkles. Daddy, I want a pony. And I want it now. 
Hi guys, I hope you don't mind me interrupting this podcast to talk to you about Daytona Motorsport, our partners, this week. On behalf of Daytona Motorsport, I'd like to tell you that Daytona has launched a brand new fleet of D-Max GT carts at Daytona Tamworth. The first fleet in the UK offering the combination of Sodi GTX chassis and Rotex 125cc Evo two-stroke engines. Any experienced driver aged 16 and over can drive them on the 1,000-meter circuit in Tamworth. Daytona circuits in Milton Keynes and Sandown both offer D-Max carts, again, powered by Rotex Evo engines, but with the Burrell chassis. All of Daytona's outdoor circuits offer arrive and drive and open races in the two-stroke carts. Now, this is the one that excites me. For the fans of Sodi RT8 390cc carts, that's the ones I defeated the pathetic Chris Stevens on at Milton Keynes two weekends ago. How about taking part in the Daytona 360 Challenge this October? It's a six-hour endurance race in aid of BBC's Children in Need, with Daytona donating one pound for every time a cart completes a lap. Every time a driver goes through the start-finish line, they will donate one pound to Children in Need. Very generous indeed. Race and raise money for such a great cause. Details are at daytona.co.uk. Okay, so very much F1 related, still this season related, but just to move away from the lens of this particular race, I think now that anyone who says F1 is just about the cars and it's just about who has the best car wins can go and drink a warm cup of shut the heck up. Obviously, the cars are a factor and no driver is going to put the Force India on pole on merit. But let's have a look at the top teams and all the way up and down the grid. This season in particular, you are seeing the drivers make a difference. Now, Bottas at Williams was a rated guy. Everyone was talking about when Bottas was going to come of age and and take on Formula One, be the next flying fin. But Lewis is making Bottas look ordinary. Consistently, Bottas can't live with Lewis in qualifying. You look at Bottas's face. He's trying to understand what's going wrong. What is he doing that's having his teammate 0.7 of a lap down the road, 0.5 of a lap down the road, when he feels like he's doing everything he's done throughout his racing career that's got him to the best team in Formula One, yet can't get him on par with Lewis Hamilton. So tell me that the drivers don't make a difference in Formula One. Of course, you've got in Ferrari as well. Yeah, sure, Kimi Raikkonen's showing some flashes of pace, but he hasn't got the consistency. He's not putting those laps together. Chris, I mean, now more than ever, it's really exciting. People are getting found out, if you want to be really harsh about it. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And I think the perfect example is Fernando Alonso. I know we do keep coming back to Alonso and praising him for the things that he is able to do in that car. But for him to have made Q3 on a power circuit in that car is not only amazing in itself, but his start was incredible where he got up to P7 and defended like hell against the likes of Hulkenberg. And Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Uh, the Force Indias, and, and that sort of stuff is fantastic to watch. And I think you're right; it's still eighty percent of the cut. And Bottas, it, it probably always will be. And Matt but, uh, Bottas, uh, as Joshua Clare is pointing out, is making people realise just how good Rosberg was. But also, I'm wondering: is is it that this season, in particular, is highlighting the differences in the driver ability? Yeah, to an extent, but also consider that Botas is very much driving Lewis Hamilton's car. The car was developed by Lewis. Lewis has been there a long time. It may not suit Botas's strengths as a driver quite as much. And as uh, you, your very clever self, pointed out earlier, this may be when we see Lewis off the pace in the car now working for him, that Botas actually does come even with or even perform better because he's simply used to driving cars that aren't as good. Yes, that's Enough. true. And, and, and Blackout 19 is kind of backing you up by saying, well, Lewis versus Bottas is 7-5 this season, so it's not that clear. But hang on a minute. Let's take Lewis Hamilton out of the equation for a second. And let's imagine a world where Bottas, on merit, as someone who had impressed at Williams, ended up being the number one driver or the better of two equals at Mercedes. This season would look completely different. It would be a Ferrari-dominated series where Mercedes had picked up some crumbs. It would be like, was it 2015 or, yeah, 2015 when Ferrari won early races. That's what it would be. It would be a Ferrari-dominated season where, oh, wow, Bottas managed to pick up a win in um, in Russia. You know, Bottas managed to pick up a win here and there, and his other teammate would be nowhere. So that's the difference that the drivers are making. Yeah, but the drivers work with the teams. So it's, to my mind, you're not saying anything that's incorrect. It's just a little more nuanced than that in the sense that the car they're driving was influenced primarily by, well, Hamilton and Rosberg together, but obviously Hamilton once Rosberg was not coming back. And and he has he's probably more likely to get what he wants on the car. And we can go back and look at uh, Hamilton and Button you remember in Canada mm-hmm. when they had to reset development because they were trying to make the car work for Button and then they finally gave up? <laughs> like, oh, he's let us down the garden path on this one. And they went Hamilton's direction and then they performed much better. Teams can get caught out trying to make the car work for both drivers if fundamentally they like different things about the cars. 
Now, here we go. You know you've made a good point when you just split the chat room and the comments scroll down faster than you can possibly <laughs> possibly say. I, I think I think that's something we might explore a bit further in the future. But where I think the drivers have really made a difference in a negative way this season is Williams. Because I think in previous seasons, you could get away maybe a bit more with having a pay driver and perhaps not the best driver lineup. But I think Williams now have been caught out and they've kind of lost their racing soul by taking the money with Lance Stroll and ending up with their second choice, number one driver, if you will, in Felipe Massa. Alex, this is, to me, Williams now have to kind of battle to gain their racing respect back and they've got to do it in the form of a driver decision, as in no way can they come back next year with Massa and Stroll. Definitely not because... um... You know, Williams has been at the sharp end, you know, back in the 90s with the likes of Damon Hill, uh, Nigel Mansell, Alain Post, to name but a few, Keke Rosberg back in the 80s, Nelson Piquet. So the team has been up there. It's at that point where they do have to make a very, very uh, big decision. And I can see at least, well, one of the drivers will go, definitely. They need to bring in someone that has worked with that team. I will have to give him a little bit of credit where credit is due. When Paul de Resta subbed for Felipe Massa, he actually showed very good credence in the fact that he had not driven a current 2017 hybrid car and found pace on every single lap through qualifying and managed to, uh, you know, surprise everybody. But Paul has been in Formula One with three, for three years with Force India. But it's going to be a case of they're going to need to bring someone in that's going to have that calibre that can drive the team forward. That's what it's about in Formula One. And it's put up or shut up. And Williams have got to make a decision very, very shortly, I think. I think Williams need to first focus on the battle to get their car half decent first. Because it is a bit of a dog, uh, especially compared to some of the ones that they have produced in, in recent years. That car has just been beginning progressively worse and worse and worse with every single year since the hybrid era started. And it's hit them bad this year. And there is no way that either Felipe or Lance is meeting their potential in a car that does not allow them to. And frankly, if there is a team that needed Paddy Lowe's help, it's, it's Williams. So next year is, is where I'm looking at. See where they, yeah, how they take it from here on in. They might even just give up with this set of regulations and, and focus on 2021. If they've got any sense that that's really what they should be doing. Yeah, much agreement there from the panel. On to my favourite part of every podcast. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is this? Now, as you know, guys, this stems from my relationship and it's a blame culture that I live in. For example, I have in my house the water wife paradox. If I have a glass of water in front of me while sitting on the floor and she comes along and kicks it over, she will yell at me. You idiot. How could you possibly leave a glass of water where I am likely to walk? Should she sit down and leave a glass of water on the floor and I were to kick it? You idiot! Why can't you look where you're going? Can't you see there's a glass of water on the floor? So, in that spirit, we are going to decide whose fault stuff is, Matt. Uh, Your wife's a singer, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this does not surprise me. Diva, 100%. It was my fault. I can't help it. I got attracted to the shininess of the stage and the glamour. Oh, what a trap I fell into. The first part of the Force India Whose fault is this-ness will probably dominate this section. Twice, Matt, they collided in exactly the same point. Now, I put it to you that 
Esteban Ocon, with a little bit more experience, if not in the first incident, in the second one, could have done a lot more to get out of the way. There's a wall on one side. Your teammate has already taken you out. Your teammate is annoyed with you for having slammed you into a wall on the outside of turn two in Baku. You are guys who don't get on. You've been the story, in fact, of 2017 teammates. And you want to go up the inside with a wall on there thinking that Sergio Perez isn't going to shut the door? No, come on. That is foolish, inexperienced naivety at its absolute height. So I'm going to take it then that you simply ceded the first incident as Perez's fault and have no argument to back him up? I re- there is really no argument. I'm trying. I'm trying. Come on. Give me some credit here. That, fair enough. We'll just blame him for putting the engine in the wrong mode at the start. And we'll be done with it. Uh, as far as the second incident goes, well, you know, you could argue, was apparently you're vainly attempting to, that it was Ocon's fault for simply not being patient and smashing him down the Kimmel straight. And I would, I would have to agree with you, except for if you look at where the contact was the second time, it was Perez rear with Ocon's front wing which means that he had pretty much already given up the move at that point. And Perez miscalculated, in my opinion, how far over he could come before they made contact because Ocon being there was primarily to keep Perez off of the proper racing line so that he got a poor exit out of Oruf. Um And I think Perez simply assumed, as he apparently often likes to, that everybody else will simply put on the brakes and get out of his way because he is the magnificent Sergio Perez. Now, Alex, if there was a wall there in your kind of racing, obviously both guys would have held their ground. How do you see the politics around this kind of collision? (laughs) Well, I don't think um, the one closest to the inside of the wall uh, would have definitely thought to maybe put the brakes on and move a bit further back. But when you've got the possibility of going up the inside of someone into Eau Rouge, Ocon definitely wanted to take that. Um, but I think really Perez was at fault for the second incident. He cut across him. It was clear to see that Ocon thought about it, thought, you know what, I'm not going to chance it. I don't want to hit my teammate for the second time. And then wallop. Um, I think it both counts. It's Perez's fault. Uh, and I stand by that. Chris, you see- go on, Chris, go on. Well, you can see he just tried to sort of back out the very, very last second, but it was too late um, by then. And the, the trouble you've got at Force India is you've got two drivers with two very clashing uh, personalities. You've got Perez, who is desperate to kind of rekindle the fire in, in his F1 career. You know, he was very much damaged by a year at McLaren in, in 2013. He's still trying to prove that he uh, can race a Formula One car uh, brilliantly and be successful and he's also very aware that he probably doesn't have many years left in his career and there aren't really any top seats that he can uh, get in the not too distant future and then you've got Ocon in you know having just uh, at that weekend you know met a year in Formula One is trying to to lay down his authority I am the rising talent hear me roar and you know, he's got every right to try and do that. And it was a, a fair move that he attempted um, to make. Yet perhaps, you know, he would have been better trying a Lewis Hamilton move and backing out of it slightly. But he was entitled to some space there. A key point he made there, Matt, 
was Ocon's attitude afterwards. This is not the little wallflower at the start of the season who was saying, oh, you know, what would Mr. Perez like me to do? He's just going for it now. And and why shouldn't he? Uh, Of the two of them, he has far less to lose than Perez does, which is interesting and I think plays into the red mist that seems to be descending on Sergio every time they get close. Because earlier in the race, of course, Perez was asking to be moved past Ocon as he caught up to him. Well, I think one of the biggest things we've got to remember here is that Ocon is a Mercedes junior. So he is trying to impress the bosses at Brackley, which includes Toto Wolf. So he's going to try and do what he can. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what all this is about, Spanners. I hate to think of uh, Alex, where are stop. your customary sort of. Like- don't be distracted. I've just forgotten to get the little name tags I use to tell you whose turn it is, yeah, and that's I'm exactly using what I was just about to say. I'm those using damn all your- name tags, and you, you have not prepared. I'm going to tell you seven P's, mate. Preparation. I know me and Chris should learn that. So I was doing the, yes, the glasses exactly. and the foppy Hugh I'll tell you, I'll tell you when we go off of air. But the I think the biggest thing, yes, Ocon's got nothing to lose but everything to gain. He's got a potential of going up into Mercedes. He's been aligned with them since Formula Three. So uh, and Perez being rumored to, oh yeah, he might go back to Ferrari. Well, he was already canned by the Ferrari Driver Academy anyway. So what is going to be the possibility of Maranello opening the doors for him? I don't know. But Ocon is, uh, has, you know, was very spo- outspoken on social media, on Twitter primarily. And then today he said something a bit more PR-esque. And then someone went, yeah, obviously that's PR talk, isn't it? He said, no, these are actually my words. So, you know, at the end of the day, they're both two hot-headed characters. One's younger than the other, wants to have his bite of the cherry and uh, Ocon tried to show up uh, Perez and it didn't work out for the pair of them. Before we get Matt's final take on his Ocon fanboyism, just tell us what you're up to, Mr. Goldschmidt, Alex Goldschmidt, Goldie, our favourite person with a beard on this show. Yes, representing the Bearded Nation here on Mist Apex. Um, I'm one of the uh, commentary team for Daytona Motorsports D-Max Championship, the fastest arrive and drive uh, series in the UK where um, I was actually at Sandown Park the other week, Spanners, uh, with um, a certain Jake Sanson, who subsequently lost his voice several months after coming back to D-Max, which was quite entertaining, very, very raspy. I've never heard Sanson's voice break before, but that was very, very entertaining because I did not have to shout as much as usual. Why not catch Jake Sanson on Pitboard on Downforce Radio, where he makes a great stab of making comedy out of motorsport where can people find you and catch up with your work online alex um well you can find me on the official daytime motorsport youtube channel um where all um all rounds are being uh, screened at the moment in highlights anywhere from half half an hour onwards depending if it's enduros or heats you can also find me at touringcars.net yes i am the tin top non-apologist here on mist apex um where i also do um Race the Roof um, here on Downforce UK, which is hopefully going to be going through a bit of a change for 2018. So I've got a podcast to record on that very soon coming to Downforce UK, talking about um, what happened this weekend at some track in Northamptonshire. Um, so, uh, but then I'll also be divulging details of that. But then, um, yeah, you can also find me on motorsportdays.com. Uh, did some recent interviews, including Fernando Alonso's uh, trials at the indy 500 so um you can go to motorsportdays.com our latest annual is already out so feel free to uh, have a check on that 
Fantastic. All right then, Matt, let's hear it. Your final defense of Ocon and his bullish, dangerous overtaking of Sergio Perez. Okay. Will do. Because it occurred to me that I'd left out one of the key reasons why, yet again, this is entirely Perez's fault. And we're obviously not going to blame the Team Force India for foolishly pitting them so that Ocon came out behind Perez. Uh, but that's because Perez had a five-second penalty that he had served. And on exiting the pits, he turned in basically almost six, five sectors that were purple in a row, including setting fast lap for the whole race with a 148 as Ocon cycled through his pit stop. And as a result, he actually was able to get in front of. But one of the reasons he was able to get in front of is at the end of his first lap, he passed most illegally uh, Grosjean through the chicane. And didn't give and didn't give the spot back, which resulted in him getting the penalty. If he hadn't had the penalty, Ocon would have been pitted first, and Force India would have been on their normal pit strategy. So obviously, I'm talking about before Perez had a second pit yep. stop. Um, and so the fact that he decided to pass Grosjean that way and collected the penalty meant that he was pitted first, which set up the whole situation, which makes it even more his fault, as far as I'm concerned. James Funnel wants to clarify. And, and I thought I had made it clear enough. Spanners, are you actually blaming Ocon or just trying to be devil's advocate for good entertainment? Choose carefully. Winky emoji. All right. For the record, 100% Perez's fault from a technical point of view. However, I think now that Ocon has to be forewarned about what is going to happen if he comes from behind and puts himself between Perez and a wall. Perez isn't going to yield. And I'm a little bit upset that Perez did not get a, get a penalty for this, Chris, because in the regulations, it is very, very clear. If you are on a straight before the braking zone, you must leave a car's width if any part of the car is alongside. The front wheel was clearly alongside the rear wheel. Perez did not leave a car's width. Therefore, Ocon had to duck out as the Armco came into play uh, and he would have hit the wall had he stayed there. Yeah, Esteban really needs to be treating the back of Sergio's car like the back legs of a donkey uh, for the rest of this season. But I I feel like the stewards didn't get involved because they felt it was more of a internal team matter uh, rather than, you know, a, a driver getting a bit uh, hot-headed with another driver. You know, if it's between two drivers of another team... Uh, then they probably would have gotten involved. But I think they probably felt it was more something Force India needs to sort out. And they do because they've stopped them racing. They're not going to race each other for the rest of the season. It's going to be you you get what you get one shot. And if you don't do it cleanly, then they, they're even threatening with race bans now. Absolutely. And Matt, would you ban one driver for an incident, no matter whose fault it was? Or would you just ban both like you would with your kids? Uh, both. Absolutely. Done. It's the only way to get them to pay attention. Otherwise, they'd assume it would be the other person's fault and do it anyway. Okay, then. Cool. We are getting close to the end of the show, guys. Okay, a quick word on the championship then. Any other business? Because I definitely want to talk about Fernando Alonso quickly and a bit about Renault. But my word on the championship is, if you are a Mercedes fan, then this is perfect if you are a lewis hamilton fan this is perfect because you want those teams not to win at a canter you want them to prove to everyone they can win against a tough opponent no matter who wins this title no one can say 
This was easy. This was a gift. If Lewis Hamilton was to win his fourth title here, no one could say all his championships have been handed to him in the most dominant car. Uh, but I think that that is flattering Ferrari because Mercedes have been the fastest car more often than not. If you look at, yes, Monaco and Hungary, they were tracks of a particular nature, but there aren't really any more of those left. But look at some of the other recent races. Baku, Canada, Silverstone, Mercedes on pace have been away. So I would just urge Ferrari fans to not celebrate too hard that they just about managed to come a close second and perhaps maybe wait until they're actually picking up wins at this kind of track before they declare that Ferrari is the dominant team. And of course, you're completely wrong. I can't believe you're disagreeing with me. I know. It's almost like this is a show where we disagree and talk about issues or something. I don't know. Uh, Call me crazy, but did Ferrari basically all but beat Mercedes at Spa, whereas at Silverstone they were miles away? Right. What what is this? What is this all but beat? This is Corbyn-esque fanboyism. They came second. He could not overtake the Mercedes. He could not out-qualify the Mercedes. By every measure that you want to to judge this race, Mercedes won it, and they won it well by racing well. Can I ask you a question? Are you a Lewis Hamilton fan? Bit. Yeah, you know who you know who said the Ferrari was a faster car? Lewis. Okay. And that so, proves so what? I, what? What does that prove in your mind? That Lewis Hamilton said, oh, against impossible odds, I'm still somehow in this championship and I'm going to win it. What does that tell you? That tells me that the Ferrari is the faster car. That goes back to my original point that this is perfect for Lewis Hamilton. He gets the best car. He gets the best chance of winning the championship. But he gets to say, oh, man, I have beaten all the odds to deliver this championship. Uh, He will have really beaten all the odds because the Ferrari truly is the better car. It sets up better under wider circumstances and it treats its tires better the only advantage mercedes has and this year with the new aerodynamic regulations it is crucial is they qualify better and there's nothing that ferrari seemed to be able to do about it and i will just say that that 1.2 liters according to pat simmons is roughly about a two percent advantage and that might ultimately be the difference in mercedes being able to defend for the rest of the season, because make no mistake, from here to the end of the year, Mercedes is clearly on the defense. Chat room's agreeing with you, Matt. If it weren't for the fact that Ferrari was second all weekend, they would have beaten the Mercedes. You're quite correct. Look, on F1 2017, if you go into the career mode and look at the development stats, the Ferrari is at the top of it. And so, as far as I'm concerned, that's an end of it. And Baja agrees as well. Sorry, Spanners. Matt is right. Ferrari is a better race car. Lewis is just a qualifying monster. And James Funnel says, who says that Ferrari aren't the ones burning the oil? I think it is fair to say that there's no one has officially said Mercedes was burning oil. The only issue with burning oil was Ferrari's second oil tank. That was the one that really got people going and saying, oh, no, this is where you've really, you know, kicked the bottom of it. Absolutely. All right, let's go to any other business. Mercedes, not Mercedes. Gosh, how McLaren wished they had a Mercedes. Mercedes, uh, McLaren Honda. Oh my gosh. Wow. First, he does this big kahuna's call that says, Rat, no more radio anymore. I don't want to hear from anyone. 
And if you say that, you've got to stick to it. But he could barely contain himself for 10 laps before he went, no, this is rubbish. This is embarrassing. And in the end, Matt, he just, he just sucked it. And that really, really rubbed me up the wrong way. I can deal with him complaining and I can deal with him taking all the right shots and being entertaining with it. But when you just quit, when you just give up, when you're one of a team of 300 people, that really irks me. Well, here's what I don't understand. To me, showing up uh, to spa with a Honda engine at this point is kind of like going to the beach and then complaining that the sun is hot and the water is wet. I mean, what did he expect was going to happen with an engine that lacks the power delivery uh, of all the other of all the other engines? It, It was always going to be they were going to struggle and do poorly in this race. And instead of being like, ah, you know, this is about the best we were going to do. He's like, I think there's a he goes, is there rain? No. Oh, my engine has a problem. <laughs> and, and there was no problem. They looked at the whole engine. The only problem is Alonzo wanted to go faster and he couldn't. Chris, have an opinion here. I want to hear you wholeheartedly condemning Fernando Alonso's attitude. Enough of the novelty sun loungers and memes. When it comes down to it, he's being unprofessional. And Mercedes, sorry, I'm doing it again. McLaren would be better off without him. No, I wouldn't go that far because Uh any result they have gotten this year is a result of Fernando Alonso being the one driving the car. So, you know, I can fully understand why he did it. I don't think it's necessarily the right thing to do. It's not necessarily the racer's attitude to just give up and pull into the pits. If anything, it's it's kind of hurt them a little bit because if uh, Honda hadn't have said that... there was no issue with the the power unit. They would have gotten a free gearbox change for the next race. Yeah, but I think they've got to kind of defend themselves at this point. They're being so character assassinated in public. I'm sorry, uh, one more reliability issue on their engine is not going to tarnish their reputation anymore. Well, look, Joshua Clare is saying that Alonso is making a mockery of what is a awful situation, but we can't blame him in the slightest. Can't we, Alex? He's signed a new contract. He signed more than one contract with McLaren under. Yeah, and it's going to be a matter of time before there's talks probably between him, Eric Boulier and Zach Brown, as if to say, look, Fernando, you signed to do this with us, to be part of the McLaren Honda project. Um, stop talking smack. Just stop doing it publicly because you, the way that he's going about it, he's trying to, whether there's a performance clause in his contract as a lot of top drivers do have there could be an an exit clause that Alonso could invoke before the end of this season and with the way that things are going at McLaren at the moment despite Ilmore having come on board to try and help Honda move the power units forward it might be a case that it is too little too late it's coming to the end of the three-year tenure with McLaren Alonso again is not happy you know said it was embarrassing asked if it was going to rain soon um, and we saw absolutely no rain at Spa during the race either. So is it going to be McLaren or Alonso that pulls the trigger on the contract? I just want to answer that by saying, although I'm not a professional driver manager, after looking back at Alonso's career, I would just openly offer him the following bit of advice. Whatever it is you really think you want to do, you should probably just do the opposite because every time you've left a team or irked them and made them get rid of you it has not worked out to your advantage had you played nice with ferrari you'd be sitting in vettel's seat right now etc and so on 
I've never seen a driver who's better at driving and worse at making political decisions about which team he should be driving for. But in the end, Lewis Hamilton took victory from Sebastian Vettel and Daniel Ricciardo. Absolutely. Although uh, Ricciardo took that spot from both us because he made the mistake. But that was our podium. It's just occurred to me that when we do our awards, I don't have a jingle for Thing of the Weekend. Alex, right now, impromptu, sing Thing of the Weekend as best you can. Oh, God, no. No, not with my hay fever. I can't even sing at the best of times. Week, sparkles, save us. Thing of the week. Not bad. End. <laughs> Trumpets, what was your Thing of the Week? And thing of the week. Um, you know what my thing of the week was? Q3 Lewis Hamilton making his final run with no tire temperature information. Properly old school. Loved it. You're just going to have to wing it, Lewis. Sorry. I'm surprised there wasn't a radio call back from that. Or maybe they didn't play it. Uh, Chris, what was your thing of the weekend? Uh, Ricardo on the outside of Bottas at Lacom. I, I love the fact that Danny just can, went straight for it. and went, oh, I'm stealing a podium off you guys. Van Jean? No, you're not Van Jean. You're the other Alex. Oh, Goldie. Oh, gosh. Oh, this is how I lost my college girlfriend. Oh, dear. Right. Um, my thing of the weekend, despite the fact we just talked about him, Alonso's um, defending notably from Nico Hulkenberg over the first couple of laps. And Van Jean, Spanners, you should be ashamed of yourself. He has no beard. He does sometimes. Although he's unaware that he's Greek, which I find hilarious. He thinks he's just got a nice tan. Clearly, clearly a Greek man. Uh, don't worry, I'll edit all that out. Um, okay, so my thing of the week this week is going to go to the F1 fraternity for making sure that the Schumacher family was well represented as that absolutely fine record was broken by Michael Schumacher, especially gracious when it could have been a lot, lot higher. All right, let's go to the Missed Apex Award. Oh no, you missed the Apex. The Missed Apex Award for me goes to the Renault engine in Max Verstappen's car. We are being denied of a great talent showing us what he can do, especially painful in front of the Dutch crowd. But what is going on in that side of the garage that, that is making all his engines blow up? Matt, if this was Lewis Hamilton, you know what they'd be saying? He's a car breaker. He's an engine wrecker. He's too hard on it. No one's saying that uh, for Max Verstappen, and rightly so. This is horrendous luck. He has DNF'd half the races. Half. Yeah, and why are we limiting it to him and not including Fiat, who also suffered massively with reliability issues? Although, I think Danny Ricardo has thrown the occasional bit of shade over Verstappen's side of the garage for the exact way in which he sets up his car, is maybe contributing a wee bit. And you could maybe, say, look at his qualifying over Ricardo and say, I don't know, I just don't know. I'm I'm finding it hard to believe that he's doing that much different to have that much of a delta in reliability. But you know, we'll see as as the as the season goes on, and it's only the Red Bull guys that really know, and none of them are letting anything on. Gold Schmidt, who missed the apex? Oh no, you missed the apex. For you, um, Sergio Perez's um, mobile chicane overtake attempt going into Lecom and failing miserably. I mean, and if I remember, it was it was it was uh, I think it was Magnussen and Grosjean. He was trying to get past down the Camel Straight and made the move, and then oh, oh 
I thought I'd break late and still got the five second penalty. Perez had a, just a nightmare from start to finish, didn't he? Definitely, definitely a man under pressure. Yeah, as we covered earlier in the podcast, this is make or break now. If he start, if he, in fact, if it continues the way it is, I would say people are going to start writing him off uh, by the end of this season. Chris Stevens, who missed the apex for you, Jolian Palmer's gearbox that blew up in qualifying, denying us of actually seeing what he might have been able to do. Because I guess he probably would have started seventh on form there. It, definitely inside the top ten, and would not have had the five place grid penalty that basically dictated the rest of his weekend. Philip Allen gives it to Kimi Raikkonen for missing the yellow flag. And not just missing the yellow flag, his attitude afterwards, which was, well, he's on the side of the road, so it's okay. Yeah, but there are marshals there who are dealing with that incident. And if anything goes wrong, anything flies off your car, those guys have got their head above the parapet. So I think, yes, you can forgive him in the heat of the battle for failing to slow down if you really want to. But the comments afterwards defending himself and his position rather than you know perhaps a bit of humility in that situation definitely yes you're right he uh, he did miss the apex what awards have we got left oh hang on so matt apart from chris stevens making excuses that he utterly failed to prepare and that's the reason i beat him at go-karting who for you got a pony award well, it's about to be me because I don't believe you ever asked me who missed the apex. Oh, no, you know I respect your opinion. Please don't take that as a personal slight. The trumpets will be the friends of the spanners through eternity. Our ancestors shall honour our statues and break bread together. Please tell me who missed the apex for you. Well, I was going to say Reno, but you took that away from me. So I got to go with Williams, of course, because, yep. oh, my goodness, did they just ever... And and they got a team fine, too, for running wrong tires and a practice session. And just, it's just sad. It's just sad. They're not turning up anymore. They're not Williams anymore. And what's making me really frustrated is there's got to be potential in that outfit to be further up the grid because they didn't start the season like this. They haven't got the best drivers who are unlocking the potential. There's real lap time to be had even out of that car. And then you've just got to feel like we obviously we don't know what's going on in their engineering department. But I can't believe that that is a true reflection of that racing outfit to be struggling to get even off the bottom of Q1. You can hear the passion. I think I might be a Williams fan deep down. uh, How could you not be a Williams fan? They're the only proper (laughs) privateer team that has a that currently has a tradition of actually being able to win a championship. I mean, McLaren has made that step to the Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull level. They're they're the only ones left with a heritage. And so to see it just not, just to see them really uncompetitive is is frustrating for the sport, I think. Yeah, and as Mr. Funnel's saying, they haven't made any progress forward. Evangelos Etakaraikos says Williams was so slow, they must have missed all the apexes of all the corners for all the laps of the race. And now Matt... Apologies if they've been accepted. May we now move on to your Pony Award, sir? Of course. And I'm only assuming you came to me first so that I could just say the words Fernando and Alonso one after the other and be done with it because, oh my goodness. I tell you the difference this week to all his other comments. He 
lost his legendary kind of cool where he, yes, he's angry, but he's making a funny quip out of it. And that's just lovable Fernando Alonso. This time, no, it was genuine anger because he got such a good start and had to watch it disappear. I mean, he even punted Palmer off the track. Indeed, he did. And we didn't discuss that at all. And no, fault of it anyway, but that's OK. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of I, a couple of years ago, uh, the year that Mercedes was not good, but Lewis was in it and they were at Barcelona. And I, I believe it was uh, was it Maldonado or one of the Williams or one of the back markers was coming around. And he was like, I'm going to be passed by a Williams. Yes. And this is really what it reminded me of. He says, Magnuson is going to pass me. I believe it was actually Hamilton in 2013. Why are we being passed by Williams? Uh, yeah. Yes, in fact, yeah. yes, there you go. The chat room's agreeing there. 2013, Lewis Hamilton. Uh, does anybody else have a pony? Alex Goldschmidt. Well, it's a two-pronged pony assault on this one because it's Jos Verstappen and Christian Horner. Um, well, Horner blast- blasting Renault for reliability issues. And Jos Verstappen, having been quoted as saying that um, we're now starting to see, we're now going to start asking questions about why Max is not in the right kind of machinery due on um, reliability issues. And coming back to Verstappen, there was a quip I think I saw on social media that someone is saying that Max Verstappen is competing with Fernando Alonso for the most amount of retirements in the 2017 season. Yeah, but there's, there's retirements and then there's genuine retirements, isn't there? Chris Stevens, who uh, gets your Pony Award? Before I go on to my Pony Award, I would like to add Guy Martin to my thing of the weekend for being on the Williams uh, uh, pit crew, which was awesome, by the way, because I love Guy Martin. Now, Guy Martin, for those who don't know, is a motorbikist. He is, and he's one of the most hilarious people in motorsport history. And he's making a documentary, I believe, about his experience. And he even pulled one of the tires off on the pit stop. He was the wheel off guy. Yes, he was. On the left rear, I believe, as well. Uh, left rear, I and think. He did, he did a pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah, oh. there was one There was one mess up in, in that pit stop, but it wasn't from Guy. So there it you was go. from the guy putting the wheel back on, not the yeah. not guy but, taking the wheel off. Of Channel 4 stuff. He had the Speed Series where he tried to uh, break a lot of land speed records, which was really awesome. The Wall of Death uh, thing was just fantastic. Anyway, uh, my Pony Award is uh, for Lewis Hamilton for calling the decision to bring out the safety car BS. And NASCAR-like. Never invoke NASCAR, Lewis. It's too much. Actually, my Pony Award goes to a Twitter comment, which was Esteban Ocon tweeting out after the race that Perez was trying to kill him. All right, we don't need to invoke attempted murder, so I give him my Pony Award. That is the wrong bumper entirely. That brings us on to the end of an extended Missed Apex race review. Sorry that it came a day late for those of you that were expecting it yesterday. Really, honestly, it's out of my hands. My wife won all the early power struggles and she's significantly more attractive than me. I basically have to do what she says forever. It's like being a slave, except the hours are worse and there's negative pay because she takes all my money. But apart from that, why don't you join us for our next race review, which will be for the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, for which we will be doing it on a Sunday. Follow me personally on Twitter, at Spanners Ready, and a great place to stay abreast with what's going on with the show is to follow at Missed Apex F1. That's where I'll put any kind of official changes in timings and what to catch up with and what we're up to 
We're hoping to catch up soon with Joe Sayward for Inside F1. Matt is very soon to launch his Wafflecast show, which will just be him and one other, uh, away from my shadow of telling him to move on and reminding him of time restraints. That will be Matt waffling for an extended period of time, for as long as his family will let him. Please join us again. And until next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. I bet some of you are thinking that I've forgotten comment of the week. Uh, you fell for my clever plan to trick you into thinking that. But of course, all I was really doing was buying old man Trumpet some extra time to think about what he would like to select as... Comment of the week. I didn't forget, Matt. No, you didn't. And although I know she's been officially put on the blacklist, Hannah Hassel started out the session strong with Can You Hear the Points Fernando, referencing the ABBA song, of course. <laughs> well done. Cannot argue with that at all. Heard it in my head immediately. Uh, uh, ben Williamson pleading for no Game of Thrones spoilers, uh, asking Sandra Reynolds, I came here instead of watching Game of Thrones. Oh my God, it was so good, especially the bit where they all died. Yes, that was the best bit next to the part where they all got naughty together. Um, and then, uh, Michael Evers might be up with the very simple, but plaintive enough Palmer talk. It's a, not an unfair request. No, indeed. But it might have to be, uh, Chris Fonseca saying evidently Perez was playing Mario Kart instead of F1 2017 over the holidays. Didn't Paul Wright comment, make it into the shortlist? Uh, James Fennell. Um, and I, for those of you who've, who've stuck around for the end, at the possibility of being too blue, uh, we referenced Danny Ricardo um, criticizing Max Verstappen, saying uh, he's too young and aggressive. He needs to massage before aggressively going in. <laughs> and this comes from the man that actually talks to his car as well. Indeed. But I do not see the comment you were talking about. So tell me, which oh, one was it? Come on, chat room. Someone from the chat room, help me out and get Paul Wright's comment in there because it really made me spit out my drink earlier. Uh, okay, then, Matt, who is your winner for comment of the week? I'm going to have to go with Chris Fonseca. Comment of the week. Congratulations, Chris. And thank you, chat room. We're going to hang, hang around for a little while, but goodbye to the audio listeners. I've just remembered the Paul Wright comment, and I know it's too late to give him the award. We can't rob Chris of it, but it was about the one about the safety car, where he was saying that Lewis shouldn't be talking about the safety car being too slow, that he should be big enough and saying he can barely keep up with the Mercedes car. Paul gets that credit, and uh, and we'll, we'll fudge the next one so he wins, even if he just says, hey, what colour is that wristband spanners next week? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 